The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. you're free happy friday but thank god it's friday i don't know about you the days start rolling together here right uh, although i am still working doing radio writing my column and some tv from home mobile studios and even sometimes the fox studio in la the days seem to run together especially because my kids started spring break on uh, this past wednesday there is so much to talk about we have not one but two essential guests and i say essential because the people who are out there working in all various capacities to educate us uh, to help uh, to heal us, to help to move uh, money, get supplies, the list goes on, um, are essential, and I'm glad we have two of them with us today. First up is Hope Fry. Hope is an internationally recognized immigration lawyer. She focused on disadvantaged populations, especially women and children, co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. They're a nonprofit focused on children who are or were in immigration detention centers uh, in CPB jails, ORR shelters, or ICE family detention facilities, breaking that down specifically. Their mission spans the child's experience with the goal of providing uh, continuation of care. Uh, They're the only nonprofit, by the way, with a medical and legal program. Hope is also active in projects with the Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law, the CHRCL. She's testified before both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate about the conditions of confinement and treatment of children held in those CPB facilities at the border. We had her on the show before. If her name sounds familiar, she was great. It was in September. And because her interview was so great, we're excited to have her back this afternoon. Uh, Hope, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome. Thank you, Leslie. Pleasure to be here. I live in Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles is a city. It's a county. It spans a lot. Second largest in the United States. And a federal judge in Los Angeles has given the president and his administration, Trump administration specifically, until April 6th, so we're just days away from that, to deliver an account of why it cannot quickly release many of the roughly 7,000 immigrant children at risk of contracting the coronavirus in these shelters and detention facilities across the U.S. and unite them with waiting uh, sponsors. Um, I know that uh, Monday a federal judge in Washington, D.C. expanded the ruling to apply to their detained parents as well. So first up, out of the box, Hope, um, why can't we quickly release these children to be with their families, especially when they're in, we're in the midst of a pandemic and we know that um, they're safer in the privacy of uh, family or friend, family members or friends' homes than they are at these facilities where thousands, like these 7,000 children, are, are herded together, much like cattle or sardines, which is not only inhumane, but with COVID-19, it could be deadly. Um, it's a complicated answer, Leslie, um, but let me, let me try to simplify it. The anti-trafficking laws require that sponsors be vetted by the Office of Refugee Resettlement to make it safe for children 
to be released to them. The problem with that is that the people doing the vetting are the four are employees of the for-profit contractors that run the 100-plus shelters uh, that uh, hold unaccompanied immigrant children. Um, this is not true for family detention, but it's true for the, the 3,359 children held unaccompanied without a family member. Um, the process is clumsy, intentionally so, made clumsy by the government. And right now, you've got kids that are in stasis because, among other things, the large packet that has to be filed of information uh, to be processed requires fingerprints, and all of the fingerprinting, authorized fingerprinting places are closed. Um, that's just part of the reason kids that can't be released. There are many children who are ready to be released, and you have to ask yourself why the for-profit shelters make a per diem, a per night, per bed uh, money on every child detained. So you help me, where's the incentive to expeditiously release children? We have children being held who should have already been released. Um, in the family detention centers, it's more of a mystery because families can be released and a family is a parent uh, with the children can be released without this kind of processing. And while we have babies, um, this child that was just released with her father, the 16-year-old Guatemalan girl, had been held 250 days. Um, her attorneys had filed multiple lawsuits to get her released, but it took the recent decision in, uh, in Washington that you mentioned to stimulate her release. Um, and, and that judge, Dolly M. Gee of the U.S. District Court uh, in Los Angeles, not D.C., but the Los Angeles decision, when she made her decision, um, she noted that while children appeared less susceptible to COVID-19 than adults, in detention, as I mentioned earlier, they were more vulnerable, not just to the virus, but to trauma. I know some people are in the same mindset I am, Hope, which is if we're releasing prisoners in New York and Los Angeles, why aren't we doing the same for these people? Uh, the, these people are seeking, um, many of them, refugee status, and they're not criminals. They haven't been prosecuted as criminals through our, our system. There haven't been determinations made, obviously. Um, so if, if prisoners can be released from prison in Los Angeles and New York, uh, this to me seems like a no-brainer and, quite frankly, a priority over those prisoners. Um, all of these people who are detained are civil detainees. They are not detained for criminal violations. And you're right. Criminals are being released. What I think is happening is that the Trump administration is using COVID-19 as a front for pursuing its long-standing desire to detain migrants, including families and children, indefinitely. Otherwise, why would they want to incur the potential cost for taking care of people uh, thousands, the thousands of people who are detained in family detention, you have 3,600 children alone detained in family detention, many of them five and, and under, some of them newborn. I, I think this is just B-flat, a political agenda, Leslie. 
Uh, I, a lot of people are in agreement with you. I was talking with a friend uh, uh, on the phone. We, we were doing a virtual happy hour yesterday and we were talking about this. And I, I think a lot of people are having this mindset and they, they're not the normal conspiracy theorist, grassy knoll types. I want to talk I want to uh, quote the judge and um, her, her statement of oh, the severity of the harm to which plaintiffs are exposed in the public's interest in preventing outbreaks of COVID-19 among families and children in ICE or ORR custody that will infect ICE and OR staff, I want to get to that, spread to others in geographic proximity and likely overwhelm local healthcare systems, tip the balance of uh, equities sharply in plaintiffs' uh, favor. Um, and I, I, it, what, what about those ICE agents? You know, what about yeah. what about those what about those ICE agents? I mean, you know, the president seems to like them and the Republicans seem to care about them. if They don't care about these children and these parents uh, separated and high at risk. Um, what about those ICE agents who then leave work and go home to their families and go into the communities among us? Yeah, there's that. And Leslie, um, what's going to happen in the ORR shelters with the unaccompanied children is this. Children are not being released quickly. They are going to get sick, and they're going to get sick by those people that you're talking about, employees, ICE and other OR employees and private contractor employees who go in the community and come back in symptom-free but ill and infect children. There are only a limited number of isolation rooms in OR shelters for children, and what's going to happen is entire groups of children 500, 1,000 kids are going to get quarantined in the shelter. And all of those children who should be released, 90% of all children and unaccompanied children every year are released to parents and family. All those children who should be released, who are ready to be released or nearly ready, are going to be stuck in the hell of quarantine. These children get 20 minutes of outside phone calls a week in 10-minute increments. Now, you tell me, you and I have children, our children sick, nobody to care for them. There's no, there aren't workers, there aren't enough workers to give, you know, a few kids, uh, somebody. You can't talk to your mom or your dad or your grandmother 20 minutes a week, and you're burning up with fever and sick with COVID-19. You talk about trauma, these already traumatized children. Imagine our children in that situation. This is the best argument I have ever heard for not detaining children ever for one minute ever again. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with our guest. I hope you'll stay with us as well. Uh, we are going to continue uh, to talk with Hope Fry, internationally recognized immigration lawyer, co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline, and also uh, an active project member with the Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law. Back with her, back with you right after this. Check out Project Lifeline's website, projectlifeline.us. Follow them on Twitter at projlifeline, P-R-O-J-L-I-F-E-L-I-N-E, P, capitalized R-O-J, L, capitalized I-F-E-L-I-N-E. Back with her, back with you after this. I'm Leslie Marshall, Hope Fry is our guest, internationally recognized immigration lawyer, and like I said, co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline, active in projects with the Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law. Hope, uh, thank you uh, for holding, and welcome back. 
Um, so much to talk about with this issue, and this is an issue that people are um, talking about. Um, you know, there there are those out there in the legal world, Hope, that don't feel that this case is really that much of a win for kids in ORR custody, at least not as much as it's being portrayed in the media. Um, in, in layperson terms, um, can, can you, you, can you talk about what was said and, and what you think will happen b- based on, you know, past ex- experiences in the court, past decisions in the court, and also the attitudes, policies, and agendas uh, within this administration and looking back as well? Um, Leslie, I'm in the camp of people who don't think this was a very big win for kids. Um, the conditions of kids of their release and detainment are governed by a settlement called Flores. I think everybody's pretty familiar with that. And Flores, in its language since 1997, has required that children be released expeditiously, and it requires the government to keep a contemporary record of efforts to release each child. The government has never quickly released children, and it has never kept a record. The judge has ordered them to comply with this provision of the agreement that they agreed to in 2015, 2017, and twice in 2018. The government has never provided a record of efforts to uh, release children and reasons why children are being detained. Um, what Judge G's order, first of all, she's not going to rule on, on the uh, children's uh, application until April the 10th. And the authorities say we're going to hit the biggest part of this epidemic on April the 12th. So she's cutting it very close. Um, she has asked that the juvenile coordinators who work for the government, this is the fox guarding the hen house, to report to her on conditions inside some of the uh, ORR facilities to have some videotape of living conditions and to give a snapshot, just a little brief uh, look at children who are being detained in California, Illinois, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, and Washington, which are the um, places that have the largest numbers of uh, virus, children with, uh, people with viruses. The judge has not ordered the children released, and indeed she can't order them released. Um, There is a process required under the law that has to be followed for the release of children. The government could change the process if it wanted. It's got to account for reasons individually, but she can't say, I want an orderly release of children, you know, 10 a week or, or 25 a day. She can't do that. She only told the government to do what they already have been supposed to do since 1997 and have never done. So that, to me, is not a win. And I don't know what she's going to be able to order. She's going to look at records of children uh, uh, who are ready to to be released um, and maybe put some pressure for those kids to be released. Those would be kids mostly going to parents. Um, but in the bigger picture, as I say, before anything is done, I think you're going to find the larger shelters, the kids under quarantine and being held indefinitely. Um, on the ICE front, for family detention, on the other hand, um, Burke, there are three family detention centers, Burke, Dilly, and 
Carnes and Burks is the smaller one. There were 60 families detained there last week. There are four now. Um, ICE has been releasing. That's where the child who'd been detained 240 days is. Um, Dilly is also starting to release some people. Um, it's easier to release people out of family detention because you don't have to do this extensive vetting of sponsors. They can just go. So we've seen some movement on the ICE side, no movement on the ORR side. So unaccompanied kids are going to get stuck once again. Um, uh, so, so many uh, questions uh, with regard uh, to this. Um, the, the there's so. By the way, there have been confirmed uh, cases, right? Four of coronavirus among the minors in its custody out of the 18 tested uh, and, and uh, ICE members as well. Um, as of March uh, 27th, uh, that put at least one child under quarantine while awaiting results. So this isn't like if this happens, it's already happening, correct? Correct. Oh, you know what? We, children. you know what? I am so bad. I am so bad. We have no time to get you to answer that question, Hope, which means <laughs> we have to have you come back. How was that? We would love to have you come back. Um, and uh, we are up against the clock today. My apologies, Hope Fry, internationally recognized immigration lawyer, also co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. Check out their website, ProjectLifeline.us, on Twitter at Proj Lifeline, capital P R O J, capital L I F E L I N E. Upless Marshall back. That's number two. We are back. So is he. Colonel Cedric Layton is in the house, founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded the company in 2010, but prior to that, he served in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer, and he attained the rank of colonel. He is also, Colonel Layton, can also be seen regularly on CNN, where he is a military analyst. The colonel's Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton. That's at capital C-E-D-R-I-C, capital L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. Website, CedricLayton.com. More than a pleasure to have him uh, with us today. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Colonel. Welcome back. Good to have you with us in the midst of all that's going on. Oh, it's great to be with you, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Many of us heard about, read, or saw on social media, a Navy captain, Brett Crozier, Um, who was basically pleading uh, when he sent a letter, truly pleading with Navy leadership to protect his crew, as I think a good commander and captain does, from spreading and the continually spreading coronavirus among his crew. Um, After he sent that letter, he was dismissed. And when he left uh, as commander of that aircraft carrier after being ousted, On Thursday, we saw many videos posted on social media where there was a huge send-off for this Navy captain, Captain Crozier. Um, uh, First of all, you are a colonel. Uh, You were in the Air Force, not in the Navy. My dad was in the Navy. He's deceased. He fought in the Korean War, you know, in the Navy. But the armed forces are all interconnected by the fact that, you know, you, you, you men and women have signed up to fight for our freedom, including giving your lives and putting yourselves on the front line in those types of wars and battles. So speak to me about this. What was, were you, were you surprised at the, the, the letter pleading? Did he do the right thing? Were you surprised he was ousted? 
Well, I think that uh, you know, with the, uh, Leslie, the ouster of Captain Crozier speaks volumes about the lack of leadership in places other than Captain Crozier's command. I, and what I'm talking about there is the Navy. So I wasn't uh, surprised at the letter. I, I think the letter was a, a very necessary thing for him to do because he wasn't seeing action. Uh, he had taken the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which is a huge aircraft carrier, into port in Guam, a place that I know pretty well. And he had gone uh, about the business of taking care of his sailors. And that's the most important thing. When you're a commander, you need to do that. And so he did the right thing there. Uh, what I was really concerned about and continue to be concerned about is the fact that the Navy saw fit to remove him from command when all he was really doing was taking care of his people. And that's the number one job of a leader is to take care of their people. Speak specifically to the failure of this administration. The president of the United States is commander in chief. He could have stopped this, correct? Yes, absolutely. He could have reached down several echelons and uh, said, no, you will not fire a captain for defending his troops, defending his sailors. And uh, in, in essence, what he was trying to do was protect them from the unseen scourge that is the coronavirus. Uh, so yeah, yeah, the president could have stepped in, he could have stopped any of this. And yesterday I thought it was instructive during the president's press conference on the coronavirus, when he was asked about Captain Crozier's case, he specifically said that he refused to intervene in that and that the Navy should in essence take care of itself in this particular area. Uh, well, that's not good enough. He's reached in to protect people like uh, uh, Chief Gallagher uh, and people that do not deserve presidential protection. And when he was called upon to protect someone who did deserve presidential protection, he chose not to do so. And that is a very sad state of affairs. It, it, you know, as a colonel yourself, uh, that that's pretty much equivalent to a captain, or maybe even higher than a captain, right? If you look at a navy captain and an, uh, an air force colonel, am I correct? Yep. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're right. It's the same. It's the same rank. It's the same exact rank. Okay. If you had been in this situation, um, as a colonel, with your troops, your men and women, uh, below you and under your command, looking to you for leadership. What would you have done in this situation? Maybe not a boat, but maybe in a situation where you were isolated and you were seeing infection and, and, and virus spread among those in the ranks uh, under you. What, what would you have done if you were in this position? I would have gotten my troops out of there as quickly as I possibly could have. Uh, you know, in the Air Force, we're obviously not usually on a on a ship like Captain Crozier was, uh, but uh, in the case that you uh, know the cases that I've seen where something like this could have happened, uh, you know, probably a deployed location or something like that would have done everything in my power uh, to get the troops out of harm's way. And in this case, case harm's way means. Uh, you know, the, the virus and, uh, you know, something that is unseen, that's not uh, the standard enemy, but it is still an enemy and you get them out of out of harm's way. That's your number one job. Did he in a, did he follow standard operating procedure then knowing uh, the guidelines within the armed forces, um, you know, for doing what you just said you would have done with with your troops? I mean, was he wrong for what he did? And if so, what is the justification for this ouster? 
So when you look at the strict chain of command, apparently, and it wasn't, you know, I read the letter uh, as as well as you did, Leslie, and, uh, you know, it's it's not clear from uh, the uh, letterhead itself where the letter went, even though we know from reports that it went to about 30 to 40 people in and outside of his chain of command. So technically speaking, uh, you, you could make the argument that he violated normal protocol, that he went outside of the chain of command. My suspicion is, is that Captain Crozier uh, went outside of the chain of command because he wasn't hearing from his superiors at least not in the way that he expected and not in the way that gave him comfort that his his soldiers or sailors would be protected. And that, uh, you know, is when you do things that are a little bit different and you go unorthodox. And in his case, he went unorthodox. The secretary of the acting secretary of the Navy didn't like that. But uh, you know what? Uh, I would respect somebody who, uh, if I were, let's say, the Secretary of the Navy, I would respect somebody who tried to do the right thing for their sailors, uh, as opposed to somebody who's following all the rules all the time. And in this case, uh, you can go around the chain of command if there's a justification for doing so. And the life of sailors uh, and any other military person is obviously something that is worth doing whatever you can uh, to get them to safety as as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Uh, The ship is the USS Theodore Roosevelt. It's currently docked in Guam. There are videos everywhere, but one in particular from Facebook. It was the account of Michael Washington. It showed hundreds of service members on the hangar deck of that ship uh, chanting, Captain Crozier, Captain Crozier, clapping. Here's a little audio of that moment. Someone in one of the sailor videos posted online says, quote, and that's how you send off one of the greatest captains you've ever had in adding the GOAT, greatest of all time, the man for the people. We'll be back with another GOAT, greatest of all time, man for the people, uh, Colonel Cedric Layton. We'll be back with you and talk more about Captain Crozier fired just four days after he pleaded for help as the coronavirus ravaged his crew on that ship, on that Navy ship, uh, the Roosevelt. We'll be back right after this. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. We're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Uh, Speaking of welcoming back, we welcome back Colonel Cedric Layton, founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, uh, U.S. Air Force for 26 years, intelligence officer who has attained the rank of colonel and a military analyst on CNN. Uh, Colonel, thank you for holding. Welcome back. We were talking about the Navy removing uh, the aircraft carrier captain who raised the alarm about the corona uh, virus uh, response. Uh, Colonel, just so I understand and everyone listening does, when um, Captain Crozier was fired just four days after he pled for help um, uh, for his crew as coronavirus was ravaging through uh, their ranks on the Roosevelt, uh, he sent that letter uh, to the U.S. Navy on Sunday. Um, he was seeking to evacuate and isolate the crew. So he was seeking to do exactly what you said you would do, which further perplexes people. Um, but there are many people who have asked me, and I don't know the answer to this. I know you do. Because he's been fired, does he lose any kind of benefits that he has built up all these years as a captain in the Navy? 
No, according to what we've heard in the reporting, there is no uh, judicial proceeding against him. So in the Navy, they call it the captain's mast. Uh, and in his case, because he's a captain, it would be the admiral's mast. And basically, that's a trial. Uh, there's been no indication that they're going to do something like that. Uh, that would be the only way they could reduce him in rank or reduce benefits uh, for Captain Crozier. So uh, while losing a command is definitely a blow to your personal prestige and to your career, path under normal circumstances, uh, it does not mean that you're you know, removed from the Navy, booted out of the Navy, or that you lose rank or lose your pension or anything of that nature. Um, and um, also, like I said, he had sent that urgent letter to the Navy seeking to evacuate and isolate the crew because the coronavirus infection, those cases were increasing on the, ve the vessel. Um, the letter, which was published in the San Francisco Chronicle, was sent out broadly via email. Um, and according to acting Navy Secretary Thomas Maudley, uh, they created panic on the vessel and they felt that Crozier exercised extremely poor judgment. Uh, do you disagree with the acting Navy Secretary Thomas Maudley? I do. Uh, in fact, I think uh, Secretary Maudley has uh, misread the reaction of the crew. The letter itself uh, did not generate any panic uh, among the crew, if there was panic, and I don't think there was, because uh, these people are all professional. If there was panic, it was caused by the coronavirus, not by anything that the captain did, that Captain Crozier did. Uh, so, you know, it's a, the secretary's reading of this is fundamentally false. Uh, what he should have understood from this is that this was a plea for help from one of the most important, uh, from the commanders of one of the most important military assets that we have, an aircraft carrier. And, uh, you know, under normal circumstances, somebody that understands how the Navy works and how uh, the military in general works, they would realize that if a commander uh, puts out a cry for help like this, the situation is almost always incredibly serious. And it requires higher headquarters of all types, whether it's a regional command or the headquarters of the Navy itself at the Pentagon. It requires those headquarters to react very quickly to help with that situation and, uh, you know, to make the captain a scapegoat uh, for the failure of higher echelons to do their duty uh, is an absolute mistake and, uh, frankly, a travesty. Well, I agree with you that the panic set in before. I mean, you don't write a four-page letter to Navy officials, as Captain Crozier did, asking for the crew of the aircraft carrier to be evacuated for de decisive action uh, as that coronavirus spread on board. Uh, he wrote, quote, we are not at war and therefore cannot allow a single sailor to perish as a result of this pandemic unnecessarily. Um, after his um, ouster, um, and, and those videos that surfaced on social media showing that ruckus going away for him and that term uh, Captain Crozier was uh, trending on, on Twitter as many praised his decisions, his decision to protect his crew. Is there any going back from this? Can the Navy say, you know what, we, uh, no pun intended, pulled the trigger too quickly on this and overreacted, um, you know, or, or is that something the Navy would never do even if they realize that they acted in haste and perhaps wrongly in haste? Well, Leslie, the history of such situations shows that institutions like the Navy and the Air Force would 
probably be the same way. Uh, unfortunately, they, they tend to not pull back from decisions of this type. Uh, now, you know, could they do it? Yes, theoretically, they absolutely could admit a mistake and say, no, you know, we, we pulled the gun, uh, you know, so to speak, uh, a little bit a little bit too quickly here. But I think, uh, you know, in this case, uh, we won't see that happening because uh, we're almost getting into a situation where uh, they would feel that they would be losing too much face and uh, that would uh, then diminish their ability uh, you know to to lead further in their view uh, and i'm talking about the secretary of the navy the chief of naval operations and you know other people in in the higher echelons of command uh, but i think that uh, you know that it would be great if they did do that that would be a leadership lesson for the ages and i would uh, uh, you know unfortunately have to wager a paycheck that it won't happen uh, but a it would be great if it did. Um, yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, uh, 113 members of the crew, uh, a lot of people, tested positive. And when you think about being in an – look what they're doing with cruise ships, right? With the, the cruise ships, I mean there's only – a Navy ship is much different than a cruise ship. You know, you don't you, – you have – well, you, you can speak to this, Captain. Can you – when you mm -hmm. go on a cruise, a lot of people – Say you and I were married, you and I would have a room, right? A husband and wife would have a room. A couple would have a room. A family right. might have a room or two. That's not the way it is. I mean, you have one, two, three, four men in, or women, and I think men in this case, to a room on those ships, correct? Very different than the cruise ships that we're seeing, so much more difficult to quarantine. Am I correct in that? Oh. Oh, absolutely, Leslie. And, you know, the thing there is, yes, yeah, the only people that get uh, state rooms, as they're called in the cruise business and in the Navy, uh, are the higher ranking people. And we're talking the captain, his executive officer, and a few other people like that. Um, everybody else uh, is in a berthing area. I spent uh, a whole month on uh, the USS Blue Ridge, which was another ship that Captain Crozier commanded. Uh, in fact, the one he commanded, I believe, just before the Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, and uh, while that that ship is not an aircraft carrier, it's a command ship. Uh, it is, uh, you know, just like any other ship. Uh, the experience that I had was what they call a berthing area, B-E-R-T-H. Uh, and uh, that birthing area is filled with uh, with people. I think we had over 22. Uh, we were in the enlisted birthing spaces because they didn't have enough room for everybody else uh, that was added to the ship's company at that point in time. Uh, so there are places that have 22, 30 people all in one room. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the captain was absolutely right. Uh, you know, if you understand anything about, uh, you know, how the Navy uh, process works in terms of how they put their personnel up uh, during a, a, a cruise uh, that they, uh, you know, have uh, a lot of people in one room, very easy to spread disease and viruses. In fact, I remember having a case where one of my guys got sick, not with, obviously not with coronavirus, uh, but he had uh, basically a viral pneumonia and uh, we had to make sure he got the right medication to make sure he didn't spread it uh, to the other members of the ship's company. And that was, uh, that was a key thing even even back then um wow yeah absolutely by the way the other thing is um family members of these sailors aboard the theodore roosevelt had expressed growing concern 
before that letter, uh, that publication of that letter, um, the family members felt that the Navy was moving too slowly and getting sailors off the ship. So there was outrage and um, uh, worry and, um, you know, the it, 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 outrage and worry by the families before. I mean, so these people were pleading to the Navy, pleading to the captain. Um, you know, his back was up against a wall, so to speak, because, you know, there are people that were getting sick and that could die right in front of him, but also their families were pressuring not just him, but the Navy. So the Navy knew about this before this letter, correct, Colonel? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Navy knew about this before this letter. And one of the things that the Navy leadership talks about is that uh, the Navy was already responding to those concerns. But I think it's pretty clear from what we know right now that they weren't responding quickly enough. And the families that you mentioned, the families of the sailors, uh, they're basically lauding Captain Crozier and his decisions. And uh, I think uh, I think they're right about this. Captain Crozier did what he felt he needed to do to protect those sailors. And uh, you know, that's that's one of the key uh, tragedies, I think, of this is that uh, you're going to stymie uh, people, especially in command positions like this, from telling the truth. And you don't want to do that. Uh, also, a lot of people may not be aware uh, that the mother of one of the sailors tested positive for the virus uh, and that sailor was evacuated from the ship. Um, she said that she and most people in closed Facebook groups her family members um, back the captain. So uh, a lot, a lot of the crew does not agree with what the Navy has done here. We are out of time, but Colonel, thank you for taking the time. I know you're busy. Keep doing the great job you do on CNN with your organization as founder and president of Cedric Layton, uh, Cedric Layton Associates. Colonel Cedric Layton, and be sure, folks, uh, to check out, uh, like I said, his website. Uh, that is CedricLayton.com, and follow him at Cedric Layton on Twitter.